Precision medicine, is it hype or help, fact or fiction? Welcome to Precision Insight. This is a podcast series where the most influential thought leaders and innovators in healthcare sit with me to chat about the latest technologies and tools of precision medicine. What is coming up in the near future? If you want to know more about this incredibly fast-moving field of research and development, stay tuned. Welcome, everyone. It's my real pleasure to be running another pharmacogenetic podcast for Genexis Healthcare Systems. My name is Martin Dors, and with me here today, we've got Neda Leonard and Jerry Stanford. And I'm really delighted because we're going to hear a patient's story of, of pharmacogenetics. And I'm going to, full disclosure, I don't know this story yet. So I'm with you, really interested in, in hearing how this unfolded. Just a bit of background, Neda Leonard is a pharmacist, but an unusual pharmacist. She's got, uh, she's dual board certified in both pharmacotherapy and geriatrics, and there are very few of those. But then on top of that, she's got pharmacogenetic certification from the Mayo Clinic. Um, and so she brings a wealth of experience and knowledge when she's uh, working with her patients. And it's a real privilege to hear her thoughts about pharmacogenetics and, and this personal story of an individual patient. And then we'll get on to some larger issues after we've had the interview with the patient. So Neda, can I uh, pass it over to you for the moment? Thank you, Martin, for the introduction. It's truly a pleasure to share my personal experience with um, our listeners today. As Martin mentioned, I've been a clinical pharmacist working in different settings, solving medication puzzles often. So that sums up my job for both providers and for patients. But I really today, I'd like to describe this epiphany I had. I can just say this aha moment when I was reminded that there are just more than uh, there are a lot of things out there to pick from when there is a right medication to be selected for the right dose for a right patient. So I will, you know, I'll get you back there when I can describe where that this epiphany was all about. But before getting there, I am just really privileged to have my patient here, Joey, with us today to give a story of how we use preemptive selective pharmacogenomic testing. And before I do that, I like to, you know, please allow me to take you back a few years years, well, maybe more than a few years, maybe over a quarter century ago, when I was a graduate student in pharmacology and on basic drug metabolism. As a, this very naive graduate student, I always wanted to believe. I wanted to believe that we really understood the process of how an individual can metabolize and respond to a medication with a given dose, right? We have all of those clinical research. We have all of these guidelines that we can follow. Then we have this fancy clinical research settings that I was personally involved to initiate the right medication at the right dose to give anybody in order to get that predictable effect. But even then, it was always puzzling why we had such outliers everywhere. We had would give medication, in the, even in a clinical setting, we would give a medication, and we wouldn't get that predictable result somewhere. And I, I think with the COVID pandemic, many of you also agree with me that there are just a lot of ways that we can all be our or very own individual with very individual set of genes and responses, especially responses to medications, as we see that people respond differently when they have the severe COVID disease to various medication we throw at them. 
So did we really see the holistic picture of this, all of these elements working together, produce a response to the medication quarter century ago when I was a graduate student? Obviously, we didn't. Now, if I can fast forward, if you allow me to fast forward just a few years when I got my clinic, first clinical role in an ICU setting. So here we are. We are in an ICU, very controlled setting, intensive care setting. We give a medication to two ICU beds exactly the same med. Um, and I've already done all of my fancy work with dose adjustment for weight, height, kidney, liver, all of that. And I'm really, really certain that sh I should get that response. Why? Because I've been following up all the clinical uh, guidelines that were given to me. But again, we see variable responses. The same drug corrected for the dose for the patient is challenged again with a different medication response. So that's when we scratched our head about 10 years ago, uh, myself and many of my colleagues saying that this is probably are not seeing the entire picture. So this started me on a journey, that aha moment that I had to look above and beyond that traditional teaching that school provided us, many of us, many of your doctors and pharmacists that are taking care of you were traditionally taught that a medication, a certain dose should provide a certain response. But when we look into the precision medicine, that traditional teaching is challenged. It's challenged because each of us have a very unique set of genes, you know, given to us by our parents, and we are going to be different in the way we respond to the medication. So this is the definition of precision medicine. I just wanted to clear up that aha moment with you all and, and also bring you guys to today. So today I use this science on a daily basis. When I partner with physicians that I work with in a clinic setting, and when I solve those puzzles that are medications that they throw at me and the list of medications that they give, give to me. But in my opinion, we have come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. Maybe we can do a better job knowing about how genes affect medication response before a prescription is ordered rather than when it is ordered and when it's tried with no success. So this is what we call preemptive pharmacogenomic tests. This testing is done before we select a medication and for those medications that have genetic annotations. So today, instead, you know, I, I really believe that with preemptive testing knowledge, once we have it in hand, we no longer need to dismiss those outliers, those medication responses that we did not understand many years ago. You know, we dismissed them because we didn't understand them, but that wasn't the right approach. Now, these days, we new tools. We don't have to dismiss those. We can go about understanding them and even better. Instead, we can be prepared to use them. So when I describe the preemptive testing, I often get a question regarding, okay, are you talking about future or are you talking about now? Because many patients and providers out there are not really sure that we're there. We're indeed here. This is this preemptive testing is indeed here for us to use. And it's, you know, it's, it's with great delight that I can have Joey here with us today because he's a very unique patient who actually came to me asking me and challenging me with preemptive testing. So he came to me with one medication. How often does a clinical pharmacist get a list of one medication? Not very often. I usually get 15 to 30 medication throw at me and I have my job described to me. But with him, I even, if he could tell you, I try to convince him that he really doesn't need this. He's just coming with one med. This is very simple. No way. But he has a pretty colorful family history that he tells you all about. And this, he found this as a very unique tool. He's very informed. He's very proactive and energetic. And he, want, he said, I want to have this tool given to my provider before they start throwing medication at me. 
So with that said, Joey, can you please tell us how you um, decided to test and what was your experience, what was your testing and how it helped you? Hi, thanks for having me on the podcast. And this has been, it's been a wonderful experience, I have to say. I started out having challenges when I was younger. I had pain problems. And I discovered quickly that no matter what I took for pain medicine, with the exception of a leave, nothing worked or I got sick from it. And so consequently, it made having surgeries difficult. Typically, when you go in for surgeries, they give you general and you're fine with general, but then they want to give you some uh, concoction with codeine or morphines or something. And I didn't tolerate that well. And so in my head, not having nobody telling me, the doctor said, oh, well, you're probably just allergic to it. So they started my list of allergies to pain meds grew and grew and grew. And that was sort of the, the entry level into, gosh, I wonder if there's something wrong with me. Well, I know there's something wrong with me, but is there something really wrong with me or is it just uh, something else? It's inquiring minds. And I was at a rheumatologist actually, just uh, getting a check. My arthritis in my shoulders was, was bothering me after an infection. And she said, hey, you know, they have this thing called pharmaceuticals. I, you should maybe look into that. And I was like, you know, I've signed up for 23andMe.com and, and some other sequencing.com. And I was like, eh, you know, but it's interesting. Maybe I can do something with this, especially since my entire family has cardiac issues, mortality-based cardiac issues and everything that goes along with this. So, hmm, my, you know, all my brothers are on statins and Wayfarin and all sorts of stuff. And my, you know, I jokingly, I say, but it's true that my mother, when my mother was still alive, she would wake up in the morning and she'd take this whole table full of pills and she'd put them one at a time in a bowl. And she'd have this whole bowl, like a little child having cereal in the morning, she would have a bowl of pills that she would be swallowing with her coffee. I said, there's got to be a better way. We're a little bit more advanced than the 1950s. So I, uh, I, I said, well, I want, let's, let's try this out. So I came across Netta. And of course, as Netta said earlier, she tried to not take my money. I'm like, how crazy is this? Somebody doesn't want to take my money. And so I, but I insisted. I said, listen, I think we could maybe gain some stuff here. And she says, all right, if you really want to work for it. Because I didn't, at that point, you know, my crazy history wasn't probably fully revealed, right, Netta, to you. So you were, you were thinking, I'm coming with one biologic for cholesterol because I'm allergic to statin. And what I'm allergic, I'm doing air quotes, I'm allergic to statins. What, you know, what, what is this guy going to come to me with? Because he's got one med, there can't be any med medical interactions for this, but let's give it a try. And so we did. And the results were kind of interesting. Wouldn't you say, Netta? Absolutely. <laughs> the results that we did not expect to be any results were seven pages of medication action plan, hours of talk, and many solutions that Joey can explain. It's, it's interesting. I think the, the part to me that I found really interesting was that what I kind of assumed with my research on the internet, you know, the source of all truth, right? What I kind of thought might be the case, coincidentally happened to be the same that Netta was, she thought, and it came out to be something completely, completely opposite. Actually, Netta, why don't you, if you wouldn't mind, why don't you tell the story about yeah. codeine and that whole little bit where I'm not actually allergic to codeine, it's actually something different. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. So Joey and I investigated, did a gene um, investigation on why he's responding so differently to so many drugs that were common. So with that, we came up with, he mentioned statins. He was uh, placed on this very, I'd say, fancy drug because he was uh, not tolerant of many statins. 
So what we did is we looked statins as a family are genetically very variable. They have a lot of annotations for genetic biomarkers. So we investigated into the statin, figured out there are a couple statins, few statins that he can use. And But we did see that gene, that darn gene, that was giving uh, Joey trouble about, with the statin tolerance. So perhaps that would be, it could be a tool for him to go after. I know in, in the U.S. there are ways to go about being proactive and showing your insurance that the first line therapy that is statin is not the best for you. So that would be the part that can help you with the pharmacogenomic preemptively testing. So then people don't go around or prescribers don't go around prescribing to you something that you do not really you are responsive, responsive to. Let me make a comment on that too. From a patient's point of view, we all, and as well from your side, right? We all have to deal with insurance companies. And anytime that I change an insurance company for work, because I'm on a tier three med, it takes about six to nine months uh, to, in order for me to to get my hereditary cholesterol levels back under control. And, and that's the tough part, right? So if, if I had this ability up front, then I wouldn't have had to go through uh, something like eight, nine different statins plus red rice yeast. And then um, and one of them actually landed me in the hospital because I thought I was having chest pains. I had a mental cognition issues. Like it, it, was, it was mentally impaired. I could not complete a full sentence. So pretty bad reactions to a lot of the, in order to get to that point. And in fact, at one point it took me, I had to actually go to arbitration with one of the insurance providers because even with me with a hospital record, like in the ER suffering from the dosage that they gave me from cholesterol meds, they still wouldn't approve it. And I won arbitration. And so now I can take that. But I, you know, this was a pain in the neck for me. It's been a year long problem for me, a pain for specialty pharmacies, pain for my cardiologist. And I'm not the only one. I can't be the only one. I'm sure there are other people like this. And so wouldn't this be a wonderful tool to be able to provide people right up front to say, hey, listen, we've done a study against this patient's genome and discovered here are some here are here are the two or three that would work well for that patient let's try them on that first and if you can't get that controlled then we can go to the next tier class or next supplement or something because it's easier on the patient i have to believe it's easier on the doctor um, you know whether or not the insurance companies will use that time will tell yeah and and like joey's mentioning there's often that patients just patients that come to me sometimes are afraid of a class of medication they tell me for example I am not responsive to pain meds. I am not going to do that hip surgery. And it is true. People are out there believe that there's not a single pain medication that's for them. And when we talked case of Joey, we were able to figure out about the genes that he was a slightly different for pain medications, as well as the ones that make the selection of the cardiology medications more specific to him, such as what he mentioned, warfarin drug or Plavix. And these are the medications that you may need if you're at higher risk for the any cardiac event in the future. But they're often, for example, Plavix is very specific. We have the genotype-guided Plavix therapy, which means that we know where we're going with Plavix. Um, and so if we don't know where we're going, the, the outcome is pretty can be pretty devastating. It could be a stroke or a bleed. Uh, so with that said, I, you know, I'm, I'm amazed that this preemptive, and I, we will talk about it later, by the challenges of having this testing more wide available. But then we have, uh, we have those patients like Joey that ask for it, and then they get the answers. And then we have people that don't know what they don't know out there. Um, Joey, do you have anything else to add? Uh, I think, so for me, there was really two big discoveries that I think that came out of this, which was interesting. One for pain, and the other actually was for Wayfarin and those drugs and the class of drugs. So the so the the current state would be for pain. And one of the the kind of puzzles that we came across during my study was that the classes of drugs, basically codeine, codone, codeines, which just kill me. 
And I had, I'm clearly thinking I'm allergic. Doctors have told me I'm allergic to it. Stay away from it. In fact, don't even take morphones like oxymorphone and hydromorphone because they're so close and related. Don't take tram at all. And during the, the results, when the results came back, it was kind of enlightening because Netic comes back to me and says, well, you're not allergic to it. I say, what? <laughs> I say, I've, I've been deathly ill from taking these things. What's going on? And, and that, I, do you really want, I'll tell this story if you don't, but it's your story. It's really interesting how you went and surveyed your other people. Do you want to, do you want to do that one? or shall I do that? Well, I mean, you're doing a great job, but it is, okay. it is, it is your genes. Go ahead. <laughs> so Netta, Netta said, geez, Jerry, I don't understand this. This is really puzzling. Uh, and as you could tell from earlier in the podcast, Netta, Netta is very analytical. She's got a very, she loves to solve problems with, with patients. And, you know, I missed, I, I usually say I missed my calling and quality assurance because if something can be broken, I can break it pretty quick. So I broke Netta's models. I got, she don't understand. So she went and had to go back and do a whole lot of research like real research and talking with, with her peers and even, I believe, back into the Mayo Clinic to try to figure out why I would have such a reaction when my test results didn't predict that. And the result that she got back was kind of interesting. It's that my receptors are misaligned or malaligned or have a deformity to them so that the drugs do work, but I have to have them in such doses that the side effects are just too great for my body to bear. So that was kind of the interesting piece on the pain side. And then in the future, which is where I hope other people go for this, right? If you start testing earlier, I think it'll make a patient's life a lot easier. At some point in the future, I may need to be on a cardiac medicine. Right now, you know, knock on wood, thankfully I don't have to, but in the future I may, like my the rest of my family has been. Um, and what we found out there was the standard dose of Wayfarin is actually too much. So it would give me, you know, negative consequences. And so now with the with the information that had come out of the studies and the Mayo Clinic research and whatnot, now I have a, a targeted range, a targeted dosage, which is less than the actual one that, like the default that somebody would typically provide. So now, and this is just, you know, we have a, as Netta said, there's pages of this stuff on me. Um, okay. I'm, I'm a, somebody, Netta, you should write a book about me. I think <laughs> it's enough material here. Yeah, but so all this stuff is really interesting. And I think if it, if it benefits me, I, it, you know, what, wonders could it do for other people and not just the, the geriatric patients, you know, patients who don't know anything about medicine at all. My thought process is think about what I could have done with this if I was you know, in, in high school or in college or something, I'm still younger in life. And I've, I've hit, I'm going to maybe at some point I see a family history. I know medicine will help me by the time I encounter that family history. I hope maybe not, but what could I do now? How could I prepare so that I know when I go in, I can say, ah, doc, actually you can't do it this way. It has to be this. Here's, here's the paperwork. And wouldn't it be wonderful if every hospital, like, like Epic, which is used in all of the, the hospital systems, right? Or most of them, wouldn't it be great if Epic could hold all this stuff and tie it in? And suddenly, magically, you know, doctors could see a little warning that pops up on a patient chart that says, ooh, this patient has a genomic reference and has to be a you know, deviation and has to be prescribed something different, not this drug, this sort of drug, that sort of stuff. So that's where I think it would really come in handy for a lot of people. Yeah. And to just summarize what Joey mentioned so nicely is really that with preemptive testing, it becomes knowledge becomes power. It's the, it's a testing that is helpful with decision-making, drug prescribing. And so there's no more trial and error. There's no more of, oh, yes, we give this. And, and I have some unfortunate patients that come to me and say, this is my third trial of an antidepressant. 
and to me that is <laughs> that is not i i see some of the hands going up here in our podcast but yes i i do see that and and it's very sad because i know an, uh, of an insurance company that only pays if you're on the third trial yeah. and i know people that do that and try to but why can't we just think of this at the beginning by the way a trial of antidepressant take from start to end takes about six weeks it's painful it could be detrimental people can be suicidal and this is not understandable to, to well, listen, not i'm going to uh, jump in here because i think this is a fantastic story on several levels and you know i think one of the key messages i'm hearing is that you've got to have an understanding health professional working with you on the interpretation or doing the test and that health professional doesn't have to be a pharmacogenetic expert they can learn with the patient and and this is a really good example of what you thought might be pharmacokinetic it's the metabolism that's what we're used to seeing with codeine ultra metabolizer or slow metabolizer but actually turns out to be pharmacodynamic it's the receptors that are in the way and and you chuck out um you know talked about warfarin that's another example of a drug where you've got both things happening at the same time uh, you've got pharmacokinetic things that are genetically influenced and you've got pharmacodynamic receptor parts that are, are genetically influenced and unpacking that and you talked about the puzzle it, is not straightforward. But if we are going to use this new technology, we have to start to develop tools that will make that, I would say, new knowledge for a lot of, I mean, as a family physician, pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics are not natural words to use. I think we we have to start recognizing we need better tools to translate this new knowledge into clinical ways. And, and I thought, Jerry, talking about having best practice alerts come up on Epic or whatever, absolutely is the way forward. And, and you talked about Plavix. I thought there's a, there is an interesting thing out there that if you if a patient is using a pharmacogenetic test preemptively for, for Plavix, 50% of them will be given a drug within the next year that will also be influenced by the gene that, that affects Plavix. So the reusability of this information is clearly demonstrated. So I, I talked a little bit there just to take the pressure off Neda a little bit. But what I'd like to go back to now is maybe asking about you know, you have a patient with one drug, how do you deal with that for more of your typical clientele geriatric on 10, 15 drugs and, and five conditions? How, how do you approach that? I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm mostly my patients come to me, as I said, on multiple medication. They are also our seniors. That means that, you know, we, we as we get older, we just are not getting wiser. We are also having some changes happening to our kidneys, to our immune system, to multiple functionalities that we have or organs that we have in our body. So that nice compensatory mechanism that we used to have and used to always having a background as, as when we're younger, it just kind of becomes rusty. So that means, <laughs> so that well, what it means to everybody is that we got to have to a better job at this medication management, or if you're introducing something that is foreign to your body, you really have to be very thoughtful about what you're introducing. So there is with that with when my, when I am in this setting, it's also a lot of puzzles thrown at me with polypharmacy. With that comes that if you are, for example, genetically predisposed to having a slower gene that metabolizes certain medication, if you throw other medication at it, and this medication, think of it as a highway. If they all go through this one uh, big old um, uh, highway, get to the destination, and that highway is kind of clogged with all these cars, and the highway is kind of slow to start with because it's one lane, then the bottom line is that you really are going to see this 10 times more worse. 
So for example, with uh, Joey, we only had one medication, so nothing was clogging the road. But if with many of my geriatric and senior patients, where we have so many medication, another uh, thing that comes in mind is that we got to have to tease out. For example, if you see that someone is a little sluggish in certain gene, then we got to get that the, the meds that are sitting on that pathway away from each other, maybe, maybe schedule them in a different way, two hours away from each other or whatever it is that to do, just tease them out. So that's another way to use this pharmacogenomic in what we call big board phenoconversion, because that's what happens in real world with polypharmacy thrown at people in the geriatric medicine. So of course, my, my thought at the area that pharmacogenomic really experienced with a, in a standard of care and should really um, part of the standard of care is for our seniors. And like Joey said, it would be optimal. It would be perfect if we can have everybody, every patient that comes to us, geriatric or not, come with this pharmacogenomic test to us. But in real world, that's not happening. So I really would like to see it in the geriatric world. That's great. Thank you. Yes, I, mean, I, I love the highway analogy. I think that that's absolutely appropriate that, you know, you've got all these drugs clogging up the, the highway and everything's slowing down and it's absolutely excellent. And, and you talk about phenoconversion as well. This is a major issue. It's not being dealt with at the same time as the pharmacogenetics in a lot of instances where you're dealing with a PDF report. It, it's not able to, the, that report is not able to say, oh, by the way, you've got some other drugs here, which may be making that you know metabolism difference actually worse. And so using that knowledge, it does raise the level of complexity. So if we're going to scale this, so everyone over the age of 65 on five drugs is going to have a pharmacogenetic test. How do we do that? Good question. So first, I think there are a few challenges that we have ahead of us. So nothing, nothing as good as um, new science come to us without challenge. We all first challenge that I, I'm actually actively working with is educating. So to scale any operation, you have to have more people being able to do a good job at it. So currently, you know, getting involved in education with the, the pharmacy and medical students is, uh, is, is on my agenda, as well as getting into um, some advocacy. So then said, so to understanding that to make an operation um, scalable, it has to, there has to be good enough um, compensation and backup for from insurance companies and more. Uh, so people can come in knowing that they, they have the right to test it, especially if they are having some problems. And another way that can really bring this out as a diagnostic tool is to really recognize it as a diagnostic. I think there's an understanding out there that this tool, I'm asked that all the, all the time, is this a new science? Is this a voodoo science? Do you really use this? Yes, we do use this. And this is it is, this is exactly like an MRI analogy I can bring up or like a colonoscopy analogy I can bring up. Those tests were not perfect when we first started using them. They became perfect over time, but we didn't stop using them when they weren't perfect. Use them as much as you could because that's the best tool we had at the moment. And it's the same with pharmacogenomic. When I go to any patient, when I went to Joey, the first thing I said is that there's going to be limitations. I don't know everything. Pharmacogenomic is not giving us all the tools for every gene. So we are little by little discovering from every gene. So if I have a gene, I provide it. If I don't have that backup, I may not be able to provide that information for you. So, but with that said, we have to, as a scientific, as a medical community, we have to all understand that we don't just um, stop using a tool because it's not perfect. I, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, we've gone, we, we've talked for quite a while and, and we actually haven't described what the problem is. Well, you have a little bit in, in, in talking about Joey's experience, but actually when you scale it up, have a 
first drug reactions are the fourth or fifth cause of death in in in, in North America and and Europe is is right up there as well. Probably every developed country. So you know this is this is a, a problem that really doesn't have many other solutions. So while we accept that some pharmacogenetics is still we're still learning about the drug gene associations and the, the clinical actionability of them, you know we're facing a, a, a massive problem of adverse drug reactions and the ineffectiveness of medications. I mean, you you mentioned 50% of medications aren't effective for the individual we're giving it to for the the outcome we anticipate with that drug. So we are facing a a massive problem and pharmacogenetics is developing. It took the INR test for warfarin 50 years to get an INR, actually the international normalized ratio, actually accepted across all countries. We are very early on in the stages of of standardization of pharmacogenetics. We can't offer the drug, uh, sorry, the drug, the the test to everyone. Are there particular populations within, let's say, within the geriatric population where you think there would be priority use or standard um, test to be used in, in those groups? Um, but did you mention what other you, a population that I have in mind? Yeah, I mean, other specific uh, diseases, particular in, oh, yes. in populations. So the ones that I come across often, of course, everybody relates to antidepressant because there are many of them with uh, with the biomarkers. But the ones that are really, really um, coming out uh, lately to me is uh, one of my patients I can bring up. This is something that I actually brought up to my colleagues over at the uh, um, Mayo Clinic as well. So it is it is really interesting how this works. The way um, that it works is that, for example, the common medications such as the uh, proton pump inhibitors, which is for upset stomach, those are coming out to be, as we think, you know, just kind of, okay, it's minor medication, people just get over, but those are not a nuisance medication. If they stay on the patient's profile year after year after year and for no apparent reason, uh, and they're not effective, we're going to see a lot of bad events happening. And, and so for one of my recent patients was having a problem with, you know, it was doing a lot of endoscopy. Uh, one after another, six every six weeks, she was repeating that, and she actually came to me um, with with, a, with trying to figure out why her PPI, which is this proton pump inhibitor, is not working for her. Why is it that everybody else, her sister, everybody tells her that this works for them, but it doesn't work for her? So we did actually went after that one specific gene and that one specific drug, which we usually don't do, but we did that and figured out that she's not responding whatsoever to this medication she's been on for the last five years. So that is that is another good example of saying, hey, cannot generalize to a specific population. We have to really have an open mind. Who is not seeing an effectiveness from a drug? Who is seeing side effect? Who is seeing exaggerated effect? Um, and then, of course, the geriatrics with polypharmacy is another good population to do. We have some 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 people that re- really need the drug. For example, the cancer area, where we really need those medications that are super expensive and the patients are dedicated to, they have mono... Um, really mitigate their side effect. We want to make sure they're effective. And, and for those reasons, oncology is big. We're lately coming out into the neurology area. There is just endless, but I am at the moment, Martin, having a really open mind to who can benefit from this. You know, I've, after Joey, I learned not to really just rely on my instinct to, to go after what really patient is trying to tell me. 
Yes, and I think you know the, this is the challenge that at a health authority uh, scale or a, a provincial scale or a state scale, you're looking at okay, we're going to introduce pharmacogenetics. Which population are we going to do it in? Because we can't afford to do it in every person in the state, or actually, there isn't a lab that could do the 28 million tests tomorrow anyway. So you do have to have a system for staggering uh, the the tests. But you're absolutely right at the individual level, of course all of us have got variants and and it's totally unpredictable whether the patient who has the test is going to have, have you know we we can't tell which genetic variant they're going to have and then that means you can't tell how much value they're going to get from the test immediately but what we do know is that over a patient's lifetime obviously they will have value from that test right so, and if i if i may add one more thing in the clinic city where sitting where i work right now um i have trained and uh, everybody around us um, and including the providers that I work with and collaborate with uh, to really detect who those patients that can benefit the most. So uh, we came up with our very own um, questionnaire, uh, so much to say. So then everybody is on board and um, who really can benefit from this. So I think more more providers and more uh, patients that are informed about this, the better we do in picking out who really can benefit this test. Now, yeah, the, challenge well, think- would, the challenge would be who is going to, if the insurance companies are going to decide to uh, really take this, uh, you know, standardize this kind of selection criteria and take it to the next level. I think what you've just said actually is really important where the group of, of pharmacists or doctors or combination of both the, the team actually sits down and works out together. Who, who are going to be our priority patients that, that we are going to offer the test to preemptively or negotiate for reimbursement or whatever it is? Because every practice has a different clientele and, and it's not going to be a, a cookie cutter that you can just say, oh, right, it's going to be these criteria for every practice across the state because yeah, it, it won't work. Whereas every group discussing internally how we're going to use Use this information. Who are we going to use it on? Suddenly, you're breaking down those those sort of challenges of education. What do I do if I get a result in this individual? How am I going to deal with it? It becomes a team effort rather than an individual effort. So, uh, Neda, is there anything else you'd like to add at this stage? I just would like to add one comment, and that comment would be for the patients we serve. I really want everyone to be as um, informed about because nobody knows about. Uh, patients better than them. Not, no provider knows as much as they do. And if there's something that is just doesn't make sense in a way that Joey described or in a way that you can describe to your provider, then I think it's time to speak up. It's speak, speaking up about why there's a medication that should work this way for it works for everybody else and it doesn't work for me. Why is it that I am getting all of this medication thrown at and without uh, more of a detailed um, you know, workup of is there any workup out there? I think we should be more proactive toward our health and saying and asking for uh, this diagnostic, great diagnostic tool that is out there. The more we ask for this, the more common it becomes. I think that's a that's massively important, and and you've touched on it several times, and Jerry as well. That you know the reaction often is uh, if a medication isn't working, well, there's blaming oneself as a healthcare professional, there's blaming the patient. And it's not seen as a, oh, I wonder if there are any other drugs that this patient might be given that might not react the way I expect. 
And it should actually be a door opening rather than sort of feeling like a door closing, that there's some problem with my prescribing or some problem with the patient I don't understand. This could be actually a aha moment for any healthcare professional and patient of, right, maybe I should have a pharmacogenetic test or something else done to help me understand why I'm not reacting in the way that both my doctor or pharmacist uh, and I expected. So at this stage, I mean, uh, we've talked for a while, Leda and Joey, I, I want to thank you both really very much indeed. Joey, for talking about your experience and sharing it with us. Leda, for your experience and knowledge in looking after patients and and using pharmacogenetics for their care. So both of you, thank you very much for your time and really appreciate your words and your wisdom. Thank you.